shopping center which is bringing back a lot of memories if you're hearing some background noise we've got a band of boys next door playing George Michael it's pretty cool I think it sums up 2020 and how we've been dealing with unexpected situations and just kind of rolling with it so Yen, welcome to the Shangri-La Art Podcast. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much, Deborah. And you know, this just makes me laugh. (laughs) Because if there's one if there's one theme about this year, Mm. is how to live in a small island with other people and how to just live with other people during this time. Yeah. But still continue to do what we want to do mm-hmm. and do what we have to do so <laughs> what better way of having a conversation <laughs> than to slow 80s George Michael jams I love it it's great <laughs> played by boys that did not see him live and yet they're young people as well mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel I feel like a bit hipper now <laughs> alright Maybe maybe we could start with just a little introduction for people that don't know you. Um, how did you become an artist? Um, what was the path that brought you here? Oh, the path that brought me here. Um, I think all my contemporaries in my previous profession all knew that I had a predilection for um, the the more social side of things and the, the weirder side of the uh, of of living and working um, so the question which actually kind of made me take the step is you know when i when i look back on my on my life you know do i would i regret giving up law more or would i regret giving up art more um, because at the end of the day it's all about the narrative it's all about that one narrative in this very short gift of a weird and wonderful life that, that we have, mm-hmm. even during this pandemic. And so I just being the pragmatic, you know, uh, Gen X kid and just planned and kind of uh, did a first show and did slowly started doing other shows with other artists. Uh, a lot of it, I acknowledge chance and you know, fortuitousness and the and the grace of others in the local arts community as well. It's very porous. It's very nurturing. It's very welcoming. As someone else said, we're all in the same leaky sampan. <laughs> so we're we're all here for each other, basically. Yeah. Was there a point when you officially acknowledged you were no longer lawyer and you were artist? It's really funny. I was staying at this Airbnb and it just happened to be run by this guy who does HR in one of the banks. And he asked me this very question. So what are you? What do you do? And when I said, uh, uh, I'm an artist, he immediately caught on to it and said, and there is where I can tell that you still haven't identified yourself as a creative yet. And so you're right about that by pointing out that there comes a time when we just have to let go of all this self-doubt, mm-hmm. of all the questioning, and just let the world foist whatever label it wants to on you, mm-hmm. and then just graciously lay down and go, 
look, if I can contribute to the world as inverted commas an artist, so be it. Performance art as well. That was purely by chance. I'm I'm kind of curious, you know, as a as a lawyer, right? Mm-hmm. Like what constitutes being an artist to a lawyer? Like because by training, you know, you went through law training, and then and I know a lot of lawyers, at least here in Singapore, who are in the creative industry, or who who, who transferred, you know, from practicing law into you know the creative industry. So for you, what was it? You know, like you know. I think, if, if anything, even if you look at the, the current people who are practicing but have a creative side, for example, travel photography, mm-hmm. which they do semi, semi-professionally, I think it is that sense of agency mm-hmm. when it comes to creativity. So then what you do, your practice, your discipline, is not utilitarian. To serve the to- as a tool mm-hmm. for the purposes and, and agenda of others. Mm-hmm. Instead, what we focus on as artists is just on the practice of how we think about the world and how we hone our tools, including our voices and our bodies and our materials. And then it still serves a function. Art still is in service to much larger agendas. It could be the art market. It could be the ecosystem of art theory and art history. It could be like what the NAC says the agenda of nation building. Mm -hmm. But that comes after you have put your work out there and let it go and just accept how it is there to serve other people's much larger agendas. And I think that's a worthwhile purpose. So as as an artist, right, how did you, when you decided to become an artist, or when you acknowledge that you have become an artist, mm. what were what were your tools of choice? You know, your medium as an artist. Oh, <laughs> I must say that I was immediately drawn to oils mm. purely because of the smell. <laughs> there was something about it, you know. Um, I've always loved very raw smells when I was growing up because my, you know, my dad worked on farms, like orchid farms, and then after that worked on actual agricultural farms uh, in Southeast Asia, uh, like actually like on the ground. And my mom worked with fish farms, so imagine that fish tank smell everywhere. So which one has the most bodily quality to it? You know, it's oil. You know, There's a rawness to Chinese ink as well. Um, that one is very different because that one exists within a more hermetic space of this is a traditional craft and it has a very distinct smell of mostly the Chinese ink. But when it comes to linseed oil, turpentine, they almost kind of feel a little bit industrial. You know, it takes a long time, you touch it, you get stained. The idea of the stain, you know, charcoals, basically broke it down to oil painting is just coloured dirt on cloth stretched in between sticks. Mm-hmm. There's nothing more humbling and basic than that. And reminds me actually of our own bodies, you know. Mm. Like when we die, I think especially, you know, that's one of the residues that will bleed out of our bodies you know, oil. And you as someone who uses performance a lot in your work, I think that resonates. Mm. No? It's um it's really funny. Um, 
my very first so-called performance uh, was someone else using my body. So it was actually John Clegg was doing a series of, uh, I think his best friend lying in very public spaces in New York. And by then already, people knew me as a little bit of a narcoleptic because I used to fall asleep at weddings, <laughs> in hotel lobbies, <laughs> on roads, uh, in the army, in school. And then people would just take pictures and by then I already had like posted some of these pictures on social media. So people thought that those were like old performances. So John, John was like, oh yeah, Yen, why don't you do this for the opening of uh, a, another gallery when they were opening at Queen Street uh, for also a show called Zoological. So also that, that kind of biological element to it. And then there I was just sleeping at the opening on the cement floor, uh, getting my white t-shirt all dirty, with people like stepping around me. And so once again, you know, I didn't, I didn't call it performance art. I just saw it as I'm here now in this present, in this body, letting someone else use it or letting circumstance kind of use the medium of just my flesh. Mm-hmm. It's as simple as, and basic as that. Mm-hmm. And so for performance, then that's when I got into like a deep respect for performance artists who treat performance not as playing a role, mm-hmm. but as embodying an, an idea in the true sense of embodiment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you've also done performances where you are kind of placing your body in charcoal, right? You're, you're adding the colour onto your skin and then imprinting it on other surfaces as well. So was that also an extension of thinking about material or, or the different mediums that you're using? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, when I think about material, the, the way I define material is basically our immediate conditions of time and place. Just as, for example, in post-war Korea, you know, when the or in Hobuto, for example, how did they come up with the language of their movements and performance? It was really when everything was taken from them and stripped down, the body became like the purest form of clay, of mud, and they responded to the very immediate conditions of their time. So now, instead of referencing what looks like art, I prefer to reference the things which I actually grew up in. The boring office, the photocopy and fax machine during my time, the coldness of the air conditioning and the stale air, which actually like transmits germs, the, the sound of it, the smell of it. I tried to get photocopier toner, but then they wouldn't sell it to me after I told them what I was doing with it is it's like super poisonous and hence the charcoal, which is still a little bit of a simulacra, which hopefully reveals some sort of truth, a very personal embodied truth of what I went through. Because I don't want to deny that. I don't want to make art. I want art more to be a different language of what was my life during this time in Singapore which could be also a common experience with other people in Singapore or elsewhere. And it's not about craft for its own sake. Mm. It is about that mediating experience. I feel that the way you translate these experiences into performances, they have been 
from what I've seen, they've been very delicate performances. You know, and you know, uh, in performance art, normally it's quite aggressive. You know, normally, I mean, like we see that a lot. And also, there are expectations from audiences. You know, who are coming to performance art events. You know, there's I don't know what the uh, expectations are, but normally, you know, uh, they want to be shocked, they want to be surprised, they want to be repulsed. I think they want to be. You know, they're waiting for something strange to happen. You know, not something slow and delicate, and something that they need to bring home, probably and mull about, or even later on still look at the pictures, the videos, and then you know keep thinking about it. The way I feel, we also look at paintings. You know, you can't look at a painting, a good painting especially, and then get done with it in five minutes and then think you know everything, right? So, how does this? I think parallel your interest also, you know, as a lawyer, as an artist now, like into social, you know, conversations to bring people, you know, through your art into conversations of that are social in nature or something to do with society. And I've been thinking about it a little bit more during the past half a year and looking at what are the qualities of our daily practice which I personally feel are urgently needed during this time. And what I thought of was something which I've always focused on all my life, which is the, the quality of softness. A very muscular, daily, quiet courage of being able to be soft, to be vulnerable, to be overlooked. And if we give space for that for ourselves, then possibly we can also give space for others who are similarly neglected, not seen, not heard, passed by and just not taken notice of. And that is what we can also do as people who spend time with art. And when I talk about softness, when I talk about creating space for others, it's as simple as just being able to be with how do we how do we be with others how do we be with the music in the next studio <laughs> beside us you know is it, I have to say know, that is quite appropriate <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, we can either say that oh you know it doesn't fit within my rigid aim and goal of what I want to achieve but it's there it's there and we can either choose to be with it or not and similarly, as we approach art in a gallery or in a space, we can either go there with a goal of let me get something out of it, let me get some understanding and knowledge and explanation and the correct answer, or maybe even get more contacts during a opening networking session, or we can just go there and just be with the art. And not need to impose or try to dig out and discover and scramble for some correct answer because I think that's just that's just scaffolding. That is just us not really being comfortable with not knowing with uncertainty. And do you think all those reactions or the kind of expectation are because we've grown up with these systems, you know? We sort of 
know that there are rules and regulations. There is a kind of a way to behave that's more socially acceptable. We're comfortable with answers, right? Art yes. kind of throws you into the unknown. Yes. And you kind of uh, think on the spot. And yes. you get worried about not knowing. Yes. So how do you facilitate that, you know, as artists, right? How are we trying to make people look out of the box? <laughs> uh, I've also... You know, that's something which uh, specifically I've asked myself as, a, as an arts practitioner practicing in Singapore. Because when you, when you practice art in Singapore, sometimes you do need to have a sense of bravado, certainty in your ideas, the ability to communicate final concepts without letting like exigency come into play, without letting kind of new ideas seep in. You know, uh, there is no room for, for failure of sorts. You, you, you know, you get funding, you need to write a report. Before you even get, get the approval for funding, you need to be super confident about your ideas. So, I think I'm trying to, I'm trying to find ways of, of creating spaces for, for fallibility, for us to be not so perfect, to actually take very awkward steps and then do it first, and then let someone else respond. But then don't step in and preempt that response by prejudging. You know, I did a show with with you guys at Chan Hori Singapore Utopia, and when I, of course, there was that proposal, the initial proposal with diagrams and things. Um, but I really wanted to kind of pay tribute to the, the narrative of the space itself, mm. the actual space. So yeah. I, I stood there like some stone and just let the space kind of like push back against myself. Mm-hmm. And I kind of did something quite different from what was originally in the PowerPoint, uh, visually at least, mm-hmm. you know, uh, in terms of specifically the dimensions, the layout, the directionality of the space, the aesthetic, um, those sensitivities really matter, you know. And that was my way of really embracing the awkwardness of process, uh, having a having a plan, but knowing that the plans are just are just data. Plans are just signs, they're just guides. Plans do not help you walk the road of making the artwork and performing the piece. They're just there as a possibility, communicated, so that people know what to expect. But then once they know what to expect, you can either defy those expectations for yourself and be open to a little bit more mystery, a little bit more failure, a little bit more creativity and openness and surprise and maybe even self-criticism because that's I love the way you you've uh, translated this and the way you use the analogies you know and the, the idea of uh, softness and fallibility and you know uh, and I think for both audiences and for the artists especially for audiences you know like in a place like Singapore especially one thing I'm not sure about is the consciousness of the audience to pick up on these really, really subtle signals or strategies that the artist uses, you know. Because we are quite used to very strong, you know, signals. We're not so used to something subtle, you know. We need to be told, you know, normally. We can't really... We don't even... uh, We're not usually given time to figure things out and what more to fail, right? Mm-hmm. 
So what do you think is the level of consciousness here, you know, like with your audiences, uh, whether they get it or how long they would get, you know, what you're trying to say to them or show to them? Just based on very anecdotal experience, uh, I do feel that one very strong force I always encounter are the immediate questions of what does this mean? And uh, I don't understand it. So already there is this there is this kind of like need to understand rationally to get the answer as if this was some 10-year series paper <laughs> where you just practice over and over again. Uh, once again, I, I, I think that you know, that is the illusion of comfortable certainty in the correct answer. Uh, it, there are possible ways of actually encountering art, which you do find overseas where people spend time and they don't need to understand. Mm -hmm. They don't rush to read the wall text. Mm -hmm. And if they do, like in Japan, then that provides a, a parallel story that's, that's more layers. And then there's a dialogue between the writing and the art, mm. and so that the art is not just illustrative of concepts. We don't live in concepts, we live in a world of objects, of the senses, which then ideas as written and published, they become objects, yes, but then we also, I, I give primacy to the place of the sheer art encounter. Just thinking about your background in law, right, and how that translated, did it translate in any way directly into your art as you're making art? Are you thinking about some of the processes you went through? Or... I do think about it more in terms of um, an appreciation of, of what is and, and a gratitude as well. Uh, the amount of work to keep society smooth and regulated that comes from, from law, from communicating common expectations and common knowledge. And there we actually ma maintain a, a sense of, of lubrication in terms of how we negotiate like competing intentions and how do we kind of like work you know, within a, a very heterogeneous society. Now, art plays a different role. As long as the, the, the courtier, the enforcer, you know, in the royal palace, you know, art provides, like, the rupture in that, you know, art, art provides space. And uh, space for what? I would say, I would say space for discomfort. Mm -hmm. Space for things to not be smooth. Mm -hmm. uh, and sometimes it does it by stealth. Sometimes you can get the most pleasing-looking piece of art and then you walk back and you go, oh, okay, I was lured in, I was lured in by the aesthetics, but wait, there's something else there. Okay, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable, makes me a little bit angry, a little bit sad, a little bit, you know, make me laugh a little bit, you know, oh, okay, there's this rupture in the way that we used to see things. And I think for, for, for both things, they are just frames of, they provide us frames of how we want to live in the world and how we want to make meaning for ourselves and others in the world. You know, because we're, we're only going to look back once, you know, on our deathbed, yeah. you know. And what both actually provide and they, what they reinforce is that at the end of the day, we still have to make the choice. We still have to make the choice about how we're going to 
interpret and make use of the, the art that's out there and the law that's out there. Mm-hmm. You know, you think law's black and white, like like seriously, if law was that kind of like like accounting, like accounting, like accounting <laughs> you know, then we wouldn't need we wouldn't need contracts. We wouldn't need courts to interpret. You know, we wouldn't need common law, which evolves slowly or fast. You know, even the speed of its evolution is contested as well. We wouldn't need people to come up with new legislation. There will be no interpretation. Everything will be so consistent and measurable. But it is not. Same with art as well. So. Do we want art where we know the answer and it's, it can be measured, it can be quantified, it can we can be so certain of what what it does of its function, art as a tool, art serving a function of something, or art as a commodity, which it is, and we have to be conscious of that. But it can also remind us that we have a say in the matter. How do we want to see art? Is it just a physical proxy of our subjective relationships with the artist, which is not present? And the most, you know, the most mature collectors move away from art as accumulation to art as relationship through the object. Yeah, it's a mediation of our our messy relationships with each other. Yeah. I think what art does a lot is it's also very evocative, right? So at the end of the day, you are made to feel, and the feeling is probably the distinction between you know reading um, a law term or a contract or an administrative document, absorbing all of that um, chain of command that went into creating it, as opposed to watching an art encounter and maybe tearing up a little bit or laughing. Or getting a memory triggered by something that you're seeing in front of you, right? So maybe that's also what we are doing as art professionals, which is helping people to remember to feel. And and, and by doing that, which which is what you guys as as you know as people in 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 the creative economy do, and the economy of ideas and attention as well. Uh, what it does is that it rebounds back, and it reminds us that the other functions. And I'm going to diverge with you a little bit here. It reminds us that the other functions in society, specifically law, are not are not bereft of emotion. What art can do, you know, from performances like Jack Town, for example, you know, they remind us that things which are run by Rationality, the law, policy making. At the end of the day, they are still rooted in the human. We have C. J. Menon, uh, our Chief Justice, who has a certain religion, and he has to decide on cases to do with other points of view in the world. And he's still an individual human being trying to navigate all these different ideologies and beliefs. And you know, uh, personal experiences. I mean, talking about feelings here. You know, you think you think contracts are that neutral? They're not. They're not. You know, they can be antagonistic. Uh, they can be. Ex- I call it extrajudicial in the sense that a lot of a lot of law happens outside of the printed and the black and white, and that is where we need to acknowledge the context in which both law and art exist. Mm-hmm. And, and and by the same token, we can come back again 
and notice that art does play a very utilitarian role as well. Let's not forget that. But as we acknowledge that, we can also kind of just let it be and you know take pleasure in seeing that it plays many, many, many roles. And that's the beauty of art creating a, a heterotopia. It's not just dictated by one arts council saying that this is for a national collective agenda. It is up to us to decide what we want art to be for ourselves as individuals, then for ourselves in our communities, in our families, and how we interact with those who are not within our sphere of relation as well. It makes me think, you know, not so much now. I mean, I was thinking of throughout what you were saying just now, this this word evolution, you know, keep reappearing in my mind. And I think it is not the evolution of art, but the evolution of the audiences, the thinking audience. You know, because like you said, law is not that black and white. And everything else too, you know, like astronomy, we've seen things change. You know, we've seen things change in science, in engineering, you know, as we uh, achieve new technologies and then we figure new things out and uh, we gain new knowledge, you know. So uh, things are just as constantly changing, you know, and constantly becoming more unknown than ever, just like art itself, you know. So understanding art to the T is, you know, a lot of people say they don't, but so do people who don't study law. Reading, you know, law for the first time would never get it. Even the language itself, you know, like we might share the same uh, words, but a different vocabulary. You know, my personal experience was uh, when I started working in the museum, which is a state-run museum, right, the Singapore Art Museum. And it was at that time that I realized that we have different vocabularies. You know, like the art scene, the artists, when they say the same words, you know, for example, exposure. To the artist, it means one thing. You know, to the institution, it means another. Right? And therefore, we have always been miscommunicating, actually. <laughs> you know, not really understanding each other, even though we are in the same field. And, yeah. So this is really interesting. I mean, your point of view of... Uh, what we usually think is factual and real and, you know, we can pinpoint like how, uh, like law again or, or, or medicine or something. It's not that true. There's a, they all consist of variations and variables, you know. Yeah, and perhaps we approach these concepts with assumptions, right? I assume the contract is difficult to understand. Or I assume that it is meant to operate in a certain way that is maybe against me. And the same with art. I come to art and I'm scared. You know, I assume that, oh, if I don't understand the artist's intention, I am in the wrong. And I am not meant to be here. I'm not meant to be part of the audience. It does not apply to me. So trying to expand that view, you know, let's look at contracts in a different way. Let's pass open the layers, right? Let's see the feeling beneath the words or the intention with, with which the contract was created, the intention with which the artwork was made. That changes our worldview as well. And it broadens into society and how we kind of look at different subjects and even think about ways of living, I suppose, or interacting with others.
Yeah, and, and just to add on to what you guys were saying, also, I think I think as we negotiate all, the, all these questions, we really do need to have to build this capacity and tolerance for the for the dis discomfort that will come with the knowledge that what we know in proportion to the totality of knowledge <clears throat> will get smaller and smaller because mm -hmm. more knowledge is being created conditions are changing at a more exponential rate whether we're talking of markets labor economies politics the environment social conditions technological conditions which are the hugest experiments in mankind you know like putting a gaming machine in, and in mobile in the form of mobile phone in every teenager's pockets all these things are accelerating at a faster faster rate people are getting smarter as well so are we okay with not knowing the answers to all these things are we okay with actually saying oh you know what i don't know i'm not certain you know but i'm still going to try and it's not easy it's not it's not going to be easy being an artist you know it's not going to be easy being anyone in a capitalistic system where one thing affects the other that's okay. Just being okay with it. Being okay with even now, you know, whatever's happening now, with the move to the digital, with this kind of like advancement, it doesn't happen in a linear fashion. Whatever changes are happening now will be contextualized. They will be outdated. People look back on 2020, see all the art during this time and go, this was the product of this time, the time of the pandemic. Yeah. yeah. Nice way to close, I think. Yeah. 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 Artists as a sense of time and place and the discomfort that we take from our everyday situations and learning to live with that. Thank you so much, yes, for joining us. Thanks, Kai. Thanks, everyone. Let's thank the musicians. Thanks so much. Wow. Thank you.